Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome! Welcome, welcome to Paris, Notre oh, Dame wow. Cathedral. Bonjour! Bonjour! <laughs> bonjour! Bonjour! Oh, bonjour, bonjour. oops, wrong movie. <laughs> no, we did that already. We did that already. This time we're talking about the bells, 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 <laughs> bells, bells of Notre Yep. Hunchback of Notre Dame, everybody. Woo, 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 woo. Wow, where do we even begin? I guess with a synopsis. I guess. Go for it. As usual, in classic Disney fashion, we begin with a zoom-in. When do we not? We love a zoom-in. We pan <laughs> in through the clouds into the Over city. The we meet Clopin, our narrator, who begins to sing the bells of Notre Dame from off screen as a form of exposition to set us up. And we flash back to a group of Romani people attempting to get safely into Paris who are found by Judge Claw Frollo. And Frollo attempts to arrest them, but one woman escapes with a bundle of what Frollo assumes are stolen goods. He chases her through the streets, eventually catching her on the steps of Notre Dame as she pleads for sanctuary at the closed doors. Frollo roughly tears the bundle from her arms, causing her to fall and hit her head, killing her. Frollo looks in the bundle and he discovers that it is a baby, which he calls a monster and a demon, Mm -hmm. and prepares to drop it down a well. Yep. The Archdeacon of Notre Dame runs outside and stops him, calling attention to the innocent woman he has just murdered. Murdered. In the first three minutes of the film, there's a murder on screen. Yep. The Archdeacon tells Frollo that he must atone for his sins by taking care of her child. So Frollo, afraid for his immortal soul, agrees and hides the child away in the bell tower, naming him Quasimodo, which means half-formed in Latin. Should we talk about why Quasimodo is given that name? Sure. The title of the movie, of course, is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but... Uh Hunchback is a derogatory term. So there's our first major issue with the film. (laughs) The name of the source material is not The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's actually just Notre Dame de Paris, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But of course, subsequent adaptations have highlighted this character of the hunchback. That term is used to refer to people who have a form of severe kyphosis. And that is essentially an excessive curvature of the spine. So it's a different version of like scoliosis might be something Mm. that people are familiar with. It can cause a person to hunch over or appear as though they have a large hump on their back, hence the term. But it's a term that we're going to try to avoid using too much because, again, it's derogatory. Yeah. To tie in with that, obviously, one of the things that Disney got criticism on was the use of this term hunchback. And they were like, well, it's in the title, so we just have to use it. And it's like, but you you put it you put it in the title. <laughs> right. It you, wasn't you did it. <laughs> in the title originally. So and there have been 
versions that are called the bell ringer of Notre Dame rather than the hunchback of Notre Dame. So Mm. there's a perfectly acceptable option right there. All right. So we finish our flashback and next we see Quasimodo. He has grown into an adult 20-year-old man. Yep. He's 20, people. And everybody else is an adult. Red flag starting that this is not a kid's movie if it wasn't already <laughs> in the beginning. I was wondering like, where you were going with that. I was like, yeah, yeah she's 20. Yes. They're all adults. They're there all are adults. no children or people coming of age. This is just, it's just an adult film, y'all. Mm-hmm. I mean, not an adult film. But <laughs> but maybe. I mean, we get a little close. Yeah. <laughs> a little too close for a Disney movie, arguably. Quasimodo now visibly has this hunchback and craniofacial anomalies. He has never left Notre Dame, where he is the bell ringer, and he dreams of spending just one day outside of basically what is his prison. His only company are three stone gargoyles who come to life, Victor, Hugo, and Laverne. And, of course, Frollo, who stops by to bring Quasimodo food and instruct him on the alphabet. (laughs) And perpetuate emotional abuse. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Despite Frollo's warnings that people would shun him if they saw him, Quasimodo decides to sneak out for one day of fun at the Feast of Fools, which claims to celebrate all things topsy-turvy. There is a Romani woman there named Esmeralda who performs a dance for the crowd, entrancing Quasimodo and Phoebus, who's the new captain of the guard under Frollo's employment. Arguably also entrancing Frollo. Yeah. He's very good at pretending he's disgusted. Right. The climax of this celebration is the crowning of the King of Fools, which goes to whoever can make the most horrifying face. And Esmeralda pulls Quasimodo up on stage, thinking that he's wearing a mask. And when it's revealed that he is not wearing a mask... Clopon declares him the king of fools and he is paraded lovingly to another stage where a guard then throws a tomato at him, unleashing this deluge of guards throwing vegetables and then the townspeople are throwing vegetables and laughing at him. And then one of them throws a rope around his neck. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of people are throwing ropes around him and tying him down and it's horrifying yes horrific esmeralda frees quasimodo disgusted by his treatment despite frollo threatening her and then she disappears in a cloud of smoke and he calls it witchcraft she and quasimodo separately flee to notre dame where phoebus claims sanctuary on esmeralda's behalf And then Frollo restrains her and sniffs her and is generally really super creepy before leaving and putting basically like a 24-hour guard outside of the cathedral so she can't leave. Mm -hmm. Esmeralda talks to the archdeacon and sings God Help the Outcasts before finding Quasimodo and befriending him and Quasi falls in love with her. He helps her escape Notre Dame, and she gives him a pendant that is a map to the Court of Miracles, which is the Romani hideaway, as thanks. 
Simultaneously, Frollo sings the terrifying song Hellfire (laughs) about his, quote, burning desire for Esmeralda and how it horrifies him. And the only options are that she be his or she will burn at the stake. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bad man. Toxic masculinity (laughs) at its finest. At its most powerful, goodness gracious. When Frollo discovers Esmeralda has escaped, he interrogates and threatens townspeople to learn her whereabouts, ordering Phoebus to burn down a family's home while they're still inside. But Phoebus refuses, so Frollo sets the house on fire himself, and then his guards chase Phoebus, shooting him in the shoulder and causing him to fall off a bridge into a river. Meanwhile, Frollo's men have set most of Paris on fire Mm -hmm. while a love-struck but insecure Quasimodo gets a pep talk via song from his gargoyle friends that is super inappropriate on so many levels about how Esmeralda definitely loves him back. Don't worry, bud. Totally. (laughs) Then Esmeralda busts through the door with an injured Phoebus asking Quasimodo to care for him before kissing Phoebus and Quasimodo reluctantly helps Phoebus for Esmeralda's sake. Frollo realizes that Quasimodo must have helped Esmeralda escape, so he tricks Quasimodo into believing he knows where the Court of Miracles is and that he is planning to attack it at dawn. Quasimodo and Phoebus rush to use the pendant that Esmeralda gave Quasi to get to the court in time to warn them, but Frollo follows and rounds up the Romani people instead, including Esmeralda, Frollo then chains Quasimodo up in the bell tower. Mm -hmm. Frollo gives Esmeralda one more chance to accept his advances, and when she refuses, he attempts to burn her at the stake for witchcraft. Quasimodo breaks free of his chains and carries Esmeralda to sanctuary. Frollo and his soldiers attack the cathedral, while Phoebus frees the Romani prisoners and rallies the townspeople to fight back. Frollo makes it into the cathedral and attempts to stab Quasimodo, but they fight on the edge of the cathedral until a now completely terrifying looking Frollo falls to his death in the fiery plaza. Mm -hmm. Quasimodo is saved from falling by Phoebus and Quasimodo gives him and Esmeralda his blessing. They encourage Quasimodo to leave the cathedral and approach the crowd outside And when he does, they cheer for him as a hero. The end. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bonkers. So, Aaron, for our listeners at home, want to speak to all the facial expressions you were making during that synopsis and how you really feel about this movie? (laughs) It's just like a lot of wide eyes and like confusion and shrugging Mm -hmm. yeah when did you first see this movie (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i think i blocked it out (laughs) Uh uh-huh repressed memory yeah (laughs) maybe so i know we owned the vhs okay so it like definitely i had seen it when i was a kid i know that i rewatched this sometime in like the last 10 years because i had that moment of like as an adult watching it and seeing hellfire and being like what is this i don't remember this at all (laughs) what was disney thinking (laughs) right so i think as a kid it didn't super register like it existed it wasn't a favorite but i don't remember having any like 
big feelings or like that was terrifying or anything more than like, eh, this one's not for me. Mm -hmm. And then as an adult, picking up on all the things that I think went over my head or Mm -hmm. I just didn't pay attention to as a kid. And now just like the absurdity and of the darkness that Disney decided was appropriate for a children's movie mm-hmm. and all of the choices. I mean, Hellfire, especially Frollo's entire character, mm-hmm. especially. I still think the music is absolutely gorgeous. I knew Bells of Notre Dame and Out There extremely well because those, again, were on the greatest hits, <laughs> Disney hits CDs. Yes. <laughs> Uh, So, like, I love those two songs. I think it's gorgeous, Mm -hmm. but it's too dark and, like, genuinely still too intense for me. Mm -hmm. Like, the Feast of Fools, like, I I think I would just stop watching at that scene nearly. Mm -hmm. One of the big things that I also have noticed, like, in my research is that a lot of people really love Clopin. Uh Uh-huh. But he kind of sucks. Like, he's really... He just kind of buys into whatever's going on around him mm-hmm. and doesn't really help Quasimodo, pulls Quasimodo into the Feast of Fools and like forces him. Threatens to murder Quasimodo and Phoebus when they arrive at the Court of Miracles. Yes. And I mean, I get that like he thinks they're working for Frollo, but he's so intense and like not that funny. Mm-hmm. Like I think he's supposed to be very funny and part of the entertainment and he's not. So that really threw me where I was like, this is just mean. Like so much of it is really mean. I wonder how many people's experiences of this film are bifurcated in terms of loving the music versus loving the movie. Because I can understand being obsessed with Clopin for his musical performance. Oh, yeah. Great singer. The singing on Bells of Notre Dame is incredible so I can understand a fervent appreciation of that but I agree with you that in terms of his character and the context of the storytelling it's almost jarring how confusing it is yeah he is the one who articulates this theme of monsters and men but Mm -hmm. he is totally caught up in the midst of it exactly in the way that you're describing I love this movie. (laughs) Oh, okay. However, when I first saw it, I remember seeing it in theaters. I think I was probably excited to see it because it's a new Disney movie. Wow, in theaters, huh? And I remember leaving the theater and having a lot of very confusing, icky feelings. Yeah, yeah, At that point, I was like, I do not like this. This is is not a good movie. Mm -hmm. However, I became more familiar with the music through the Disney, what's it called? The like Disney. I want to call it now. That's what I call Disney, which is not. I I think it's like (laughs) Disney's greatest hits disc one and disc two or something. Oh my gosh. That's what I call Disney. Okay. (laughs) I became familiar with Bells of Notre Dame and Out There through that and then started listening to more of the music. I think that Heaven's Light, which immediately precedes Hellfire, is Mm -hmm. gorgeous. 
There's so much cool stuff that's happening musically. Quasimodo sings in major keys. Mm-hmm. Frollo sings in minor keys. And the juxtaposition of those is just so... Yeah. Ooh, I love it so much. The lyrics are so yeah. good. I was re-watching the movie this morning and Stephen Schwartz <laughs> rhymes Adonis with croissant. I mean, okay, we're talking about this now because I have this bolded in my notes because again, haven't seen this movie many times. That's not a song I listen to regularly. Like it's a horrifying mm-hmm. song as Paris is burning. It's not a good song, right? Croissant is your sh- the line <laughs> is because you're shaped. Talking about Quasimodo, because you're shaped like a croissant is. Uh-huh. You gotta know she's gonna love a guy like you. Like, yeah. S- I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I think we're getting away from my original point, which was that the lyrics are genius. A bit, the, the bells of Notre Dame, a figure whose clutches were iron as much as the bells of Notre Dame. Are you kidding me? That's, those are, yeah, it's really just a guy like you. I just need to like pick that one up and remove it. I mean, it's as clever yes. as every other song. It's just also horrifying while the rest are like (laughs) impressive and wonderful (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes so i became obsessed with the music and i then revisited the film as an adult and viewing it as an adult continued to have those feelings of like yeah this is not for children no wonder i had all those weird feelings as a kid But as an adult, watching it and compartmentalizing the fact that it's inappropriate for (laughs) children, and that seems inherently problematic, I really enjoy it as a story. Mm. I think it has a lot of really complex themes, a lot of which are not articulated as clearly as I think they should Mm. be, especially since it is a kid's movie. But I think it's a really interesting film. It's also beautiful there is so much that they do with the lighting and water like the well at the beginning Mm -hmm. it appears so ominously with of course Mankin's brilliant score in the background and then you're looking up from inside the well and you see the reflection of the water on the side of the stone yeah and I really think that Disney was starting to hit its stride with the integration of computer animated sequences, the Mm. way that they did that with the bells, especially, as well as the crowds. That's all really impressive. It's less jarring. The like transitions are a little less jarring each time they, they do it again. Yeah. Yeah. They integrate it so much more seamlessly. When I watched it, a couple weeks ago to start researching, I finished it. I immediately started watching it again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's how much I'm obsessed with this movie. Wow. That is not what I thought you were going to say. Surprise. Oh, I think, though, I think it makes sense because in the month of like thinking about this film and doing research about this film, I have come to appreciate what it's doing as a story more and like as horrifying as Frollo is, he's supposed to be. He's mm-hmm. the villain. He's a 
a very excellent villain who mm-hmm. I am extremely terrified of. <laughs> the like the religion really interesting the line that they're walking. I think you're getting way ahead of us. Sorry, because sorry. I need to talk about the background of the story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. Fine. But yes, all of your points are very good. And before I actually talk about the background of the story, I just want to give a shout out to our good friend Colin, faithful listener of the podcast, who liked this movie so much as a child that he had a Hunchback of Notre Dame themed birthday party when he was six years old. Oh my gosh. I can see I can see the tablecloths. I can see the party hats with the the like pattern on them. Oh my gosh. I know. Fantastic. So we love you, Colin. <laughs> okay, so this movie is based on the book Notre Dame de Paris, published in 1831 by Victor Hugo. We see the names Victor and Hugo in the gargoyles. <laughs> Very nice nod to the author of this tale. Full name Victor Marie Hugo was a French writer who lived from 1802 to 1885. And he was French. And actually, in France, he is known especially for his poetry. Which is interesting because I think in the United States and a lot of English-speaking countries, it seems that he is most well-known for his novels. Not only did mm-hmm. he write this one, but he also wrote Les Miserables, which was also adapted into a stage musical and then later a film. So Notre Dame de Paris was one of Hugo's first major works. It was the one that really propelled him to wider fame. The book also promoted the genre of romanticism in literature while also incorporating political and social commentary. Some of that commentary was carried over into the Disney adaptation. <laughs> Some of it, I think, got a little bit lost in the shuffle. Yeah, they walked walked a couple things back a little uh-huh. bit. <laughs> so Notre Dame de Paris has been subject to to numerous film and musical adaptations. Disney was by no means the first. And there are several notable plot differences between the source material and the Disney adaptation. But some of those changes are also in earlier adaptations as well. One of the most noteworthy of those differences is that the character of Frollo was an archdeacon in the original book and of course he's a judge in the Disney film but he was also made into a judge for the 1939 American film adaptation from director William Dietrell. We'll talk about maybe why Disney retained that specific change. Mm. There are quite a few other plot differences and I think that most of the the changes Disney made or maintained are for the best, considering the (laughs) supposed target audience of children. Yeah. Everybody doesn't die in this version. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Only the bad person dies. So there you go. The 
one noteworthy theme from the original novel that the Disney film does honor is the emphasis on Notre Dame Cathedral itself. Hugo spends two chapters in the book just (laughs) describing the cathedral. Nice. (laughs) Part of Hugo's motivation was to garner appreciation for the Gothic architecture that was representative of some of France's history that in the 1800s, that was sort of losing its luster and people were wanting new and modern things. And Hugo was like, but this is such a symbol of our history and our culture that it's worth maintaining. And I'm sure you'll talk about this in your description of the film history, but it does seem like the filmmakers spent a lot of time and attention on the cathedral itself. It's obviously centered in the music, both in terms of the use of bells in the score, but also just the songs are, you know, it's literally called the Bells of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the cathedral almost functions as another character, and it's also a very complex, multifaceted symbol of religion and social structures that we'll get into when we talk about our themes. So many things to talk about. Uh huh. <laughs> cool. Thank you for that. Have you, did you read the Notre Dame de Paris? So, ever? as I mentioned, Hugo spends two chapters describing the cathedral. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, that is not my bag. I did, in preparation for this episode, attempt to listen to it on audio. Uh, and then you fell asleep. On audiobook, <laughs> and I could not make it through it. Yep. Yep. <sighs> I'll do respect to Hugo, but wasn't going to happen for me. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I didn't read it either. <laughs> but I also hadn't hadn't read it previously, so Mm-mm. looked up a nice summary on Google. Likewise. <laughs> Perfect. All right. History time. History time. Cool. So I kind of want to preface this history section. I feel like 60 or 70% of the time you might be like, Aaron, that feels like an Aaron's extra. It's all Aaron's extras. Okay. Noted. (laughs) Like the filmmaking and how the history of that filmmaking has been preserved is all a little discombobulated. Interesting. Almost as wild as the film is itself. (laughs) Um, So they're... So it's just, you know, I'm st- I'm putting a narrative to it, but who who knows how this actually went down. Fair enough. So first of all, I could find very little information on why David Stanton, who was a development executive, why he decided to pitch The Hunchback of Notre Dame <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> I got nothing. Like, at least for Pocahontas, I was like, that guy went to his friend's house and saw the book on the shelf and was like, that sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is something similar. He saw the book and was like, we can do that. We did Beauty and the Beast. What's the difference? Mm. So much. (laughs) much. (laughs) I have no idea why he picked this, but I know that he read the Classics Illustrated comic book adaptation, which made him and others feel like this story could be for kids. So that was enough, apparently. I don't think... That's true. (laughs) (laughs) But he pitched it to Jeffrey Katzenberg anyway. And Jeffrey said, great. 
And so they started making it. (laughs) So I was thinking about the types of stories that they have been making into films and the way that Katzenberg has really been promoting this agenda of adult love stories. Mm. Arguably, Pocahontas isn't really a film for children either, even though the real Pocahontas was a child. They didn't make her a child in the movie. Beauty and the Beast, not particularly for children. I mean, we don't really know how old Belle is, I guess, but the sense is that she's a young adult. Yeah. Ariel, we know, is 16, but then, you know, gets married at the end. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like that much of a stretch to me, especially the jump from Pocahontas to this in terms Mm -hmm. of the types of movies Katzenberg was greenlighting for Disney animated films. Yeah, true. I guess if the themes of the film weren't so dark, it probably wouldn't have struck me so obvious of like, well, you picked like a 20 year old main character Mm -hmm. and he does have a pretty legit like coming of age experience. Right. So yeah, that's very fair. To be clear, that doesn't make it acceptable, but I just see the arc of the logic in terms of the context of the other films they've been making. Yeah. So at the time that the idea was being pitched or just getting started, Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, who were the directors of Beauty and the Beast, had been developing an adaptation of Orpheus and Eurydice with whales called A Song of the Sea. But Katzenberg told them to drop that and start working on Hunchback instead. Shrewsdale and Wise liked the idea and thought Hunchback had the potential for memorable characters, fantastic visuals, and a lot of emotion. So they were on board. Production began that summer. In October 1993, Truesdale, Wise... Art director David Goetz, Ron Conley, Ed Gertner, Will Finn, Alan Menken, and Stephen Schwartz all traveled to Paris, Hmm. where they visited the Palace of Justice, the original location of the Court of Miracles, and they received a private tour of Notre Dame, including up in the bell tower. So had a lot of up close and personal experiences with those places and immediately were pulling inspiration and a lot came out of that trip, which it seems reflected very well because France was pretty happy with this film in some ways of just like the respect that it gave to the cathedral in particular. Hmm. Tab Murphy was hired to write the screenplay and was excited about the prospect, but also worried that Disney would ask him to water down the story. (laughs) Happily for him, they didn't. Ah, okay. Uh, Executives basically told him to write the story he wanted to, to tell, and they would worry about the brand. Okay. Murphy and his team of writers decided to make Quasimodo the main character, as he was in many of the live action adaptations, and to make Phoebus more important to the story, creating that love triangle between him and Quasi and Esmeralda. Mm-hmm. Truesdale and Wise decided to add the gargoyles as comic relief to give the film more levity. Mm-hmm. Maybe the only people thinking about the children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as you mentioned, they turned Claude Frollo from an archdeacon into a judge anticipating pushback from Christian groups, Hmm. even if 
he was an archdeacon in the source material. Right. They were still worried that they would get the pushback, not Victor Hugo. Yeah. I mean, Victor had been long dead by then, so hard to give him too much pushback. Yeah, they need something to fight actively. Mm-hmm. Frollo's character and mindset were influenced by the Confederate South, by Nazi Germany, and by Amon Gort in Schindler's List. Wow. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The opening sequence of the film was originally going to be a spoken exposition, but it felt too heavy and slow, so Mencken and Schwartz wrote The Bells of Notre Dame to achieve the same effect through song, and the sequence was storyboarded by French animators Paul and Gaëtan Brisey. I love the interviews with these two French guys because mm. they are the most upfront and forthright of anyone who was involved. Everyone else is like kind of walking around the ideas and like won't say anything too explicitly. And then the breezies are just like, oh, yeah, like it's about lust and um, racism and genocide. <laughs> um <laughs> Like, thank you. Yeah. They also really wanted Esmeralda to be naked in the Hellfire fire. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Roy Disney didn't like that. <laughs> well, thank goodness someone didn't like it. <laughs> oh, they were just, they were all in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the gargoyles were all originally going to be male and they were going to be named Cheney, Lawton, and Quinn after the actors mm. who had played Quasimodo in the prior adaptations. But Disney Legal was worried that the actors' estates would sue over the use of their names. Mm. So they went back to the drawing board. And at the same time, Katzenberg wanted Arsenio Hall, David Letterman, and Jay Leno to voice the gargoyles. Wow but that didn't work out. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that would have added a really interesting tone with like such a heavy nod to late night. Yeah. yeah. Cindy Lauper was the first person cast for the film. Wait. <laughs> yeah, she's not in the film. Was- Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> was she originally cast as Esmeralda? So she wanted to be Esmeralda. Uh-oh. But Disney was like, how about a gargoyle? <laughs> oh, wow. So she was supposed to be a gargoyle, and she actually did some like recording for that role. But they wanted to go with like an older, wiser character eventually. Like That kind of emerged while they had already been working with Cyndi Lauper. Mm. And also, apparently, Roy Disney found her voice grating. <laughs> 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 so Cyndi Lauper was fired and Mary Wicks was cast as Laverne mm-hmm. and she was finally designed or envisioned. Unfortunately, Wicks passed away in October of 1995 and Jane Withers was hired to record Laverne's last remaining lines. Mm-hmm. Charles Kimbra was cast as Victor and Jason Alexander was hired for Hugo based on his previous role as Abby Small in The Return of Jafar. Mm. Oh, Should I... We- didn't, didn't cover because that no. went straight to video. <laughs> yeah. Katzenberg. <laughs> oh, sorry. I love this bit. Katzenberg wanted meatloaf for Quasimodo. <laughs> oh, my God. What? 
What? He thought it would be great. Uh, he was imagining a rock musical with Cindy Lauper and Cher because oh. you know, they wanted Cher for Esmeralda as well and Meatloaf. Okay, okay. I see the vision. <laughs> I see the vision at an earlier stage of mm-hmm. development, but mm-hmm. obviously the idea of Meatloaf in this version is absurd. All respect to Meatloaf. Yes. Yep. I think the rock version with Meatloaf sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. He could not have done what Tom Hulse did. I mean, love me bad out of hell. So I, I want to see <laughs> Meatloaf singing out there. I would, or Heaven's Light. He'd be so good at Heaven's Light. I guess. <laughs> he has so many ballads. He'd be great. Okay. Anyway, but he did, they didn't get the part. Okay. <laughs> he even like auditioned and like came into the studio and there's a, a clip of Wise and Truesdale where they were like reflecting on it. And they were like, we had a conversation where we were like, do we, do we call him meet Mr. Loaf? <laughs> Guys. <laughs> uh, but they, they could not reach a contract with him. So that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Mandy Patinkin also auditioned for Quasimodo. Okay. But it was disastrous because he brought in his own accompanist and they rearranged out there for his audition. (laughs) And Mankin and Schwartz didn't like that. Yeah, I bet. Ooh, bold. Yeah, so he also didn't get the part. (laughs) So... Tom Hulse was cast as just the voice of Quasimodo originally, the speaking Hmm. voice. And he had limited singing experience, but he recorded a demo of himself singing out there and it was fabulous. Yeah. So he was one of the few voice actors at Disney who also got to provide the singing voice for their character. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool. Tony J does as well though, yes? Yes. So Tony J also has that that distinction of being the speaking and singing voice of Frollo. And just to point out, Tony J voices the asylum guy in Beauty and the Beast. Whoa. That connection wasn't clear. Of course he does. <laughs> of course. And once again, asylum guy definitely has a name. Still didn't look it up. <laughs> yeah. Tony J is a prolific Shakespearean actor mm-hmm. in his own right as well, outside yes. of the realm of Disney. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and he's fantastic here. Such a good job. Mm-hmm. Demi Moore and Kevin Klein were directly offered the roles of Esmeralda and Phoebus, respectively, and they accepted without having to audition. Great job, guys. Offer only. Okay. Mm-hmm. The animation team for Hunchback was a little bit ragtag, as many animators were already tied up with Lion King or Pocahontas. Mm. So more were hired from Canada and the UK. Most of the team ended up working in Glendale rather than the new Disney feature animation building on the Burbank lot, which Hmm. had just been completed. Hmm. And they named the Glendale building Sanctuary. Oh, very nice. Also, about 20% of the film was completed at the recently opened Satellite Studio Walt Disney Animation Paris. Mm -hmm. On the technological side, there are a number of obvious computer animated moments like the things we talked about earlier with Quasimodo leaping around Notre Dame and when he like swings down to rescue Esmeralda, there's those like uh, 360 panning moments that we've come to recognize. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, the crowd scene at the Feast of Fools is also computer animated mm-hmm. and it's like 
the most impressive part of the film if you know how it was made and what it took. So in the past, crowd scenes had been small or very static with mm-hmm. like minimal movement or like bad lighting. If you think of like the end of Beauty and the Beast when they're dancing, like the crowd is not moving. They right. took that from Sleeping Beauty. Like right. not a lot has evolved. <laughs> So for the crowds in The Feast of Fools, they started using the format that was used for the Wildebeest stampede in The Lion King. Mm. And instead of copying one character design the way they copied the Wildebeest and just kind of changed at what stage in like the run it was and give it like a herd mentality. Mm-hmm. Instead, they created six different people of different genders and sizes. And then they changed the color of their clothes and accessories and hair to turn them into dozens of different people. Mm-hmm. And then they programmed 72 specific movements like clapping or jumping that the characters could do in that scene. Wow. And then they just like spread them out so that, you know, the two people standing next to each other aren't in the same color shirt or aren't both clapping at the same time Mm -hmm. so that it would look like a real crowd reacting to Quasimodo or Mm -hmm. whatever, Hmm. which that scene is so quick. There's a lot happening, a lot of color, a lot of movement. So like your eyes aren't drawn to the crowd at any point, which is very intentional, obviously. Mm-hmm. You do not notice it really does just feel like this humongous crowd at this party. But after I learned this, I rewatched The Feast of Fools and was like forcing my eyes to like pick out people in the crowd. Mm-hmm. I also had watched a YouTube video about the making of this scene and like seeing them do like the early animation of like, there's like a man who like hops three times and then (laughs) claps three times. (laughs) And so I could like pick out those motions and they look really silly and like not great if you look at just like one human, Mm -hmm. but there's no reason you would do that. Mm -hmm. So it looks very impressive. Mm -hmm. But if you single out like that one guy on the left, who's just like, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's very funny, but it looks great. But on the music side, Mm. after Pocahontas, Mencken and Schwartz were asked what projects in development they might want to work on next, and they chose Hunchback. Okay. Wanted to work on this one. Mm -hmm. They wrote 11 songs, eight of which made it into the final film, as well as Someday, which is in the credits, Mm -hmm. in addition to Mencken's score, obviously. Mankin told Slash Film in 2021 that Hunchback was the most ambitious score he'd ever written, mm-hmm. and he was very proud of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He also noted, however, that it was the film where he stopped winning awards. Huh. Almost as if critics felt he'd finally gone too far, but he seems, like, proud of having gone too far in okay. the interview that I watched. Hmm. But, yeah, like, he'd won or been nominated at least for an Oscar for like every film he'd done so far, pretty much. Right. Hmm. Schwartz also said that he thought this was Mankin's best score. And additionally, he felt that he was also at the top of his form as a lyricist for Mm -hmm. Hunchback. And people apparently come up to Mankin and Schwartz all the time telling them that like, this is the soundtrack that got them into music or got them into composing. So they're very proud. Well, that makes sense. And I I think... The other thing that I really appreciate about the music in this film, as a lover of musical theater, I think it transcends a couple musical genres. It has that 
Broadway quality, especially Mm -hmm. with some of the ballads like out there, but it also incorporates choral arrangements so beautifully. So it celebrates that genre of music. I understand why they said it was ambitious because I think it was, and I think they pulled it off. For sure. It's gorgeous. (laughs) For Hellfire, everyone's (laughs) favorite song. (laughs) It's a great song. I have to say, musically, great song. Narratively, really interesting song. (laughs) It's very dark, though. It's very dark. Super. It's so creepy. It's very creepy. Which, but I think that's part of why it's so good is because it's so creepy. But I understand why that means you don't like it. I'm so uncomfortable. (laughs) Yes, yes. But isn't Uh, that the point? Uh, Yeah, I mean they they achieve all their goals. Okay. I have, I think now I'm a little more desensitized to it because I've listened to it so many times. Mm-hmm. So I had a greater appreciation for the music of it when I'm like, okay, I get the lyrics. I'm not just appalled <laughs> at the things that he's thinking anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Schwartz did what he always did, which was to write what he thought was right for the scene and the character and was going to let the executives tell him when he had to pull back. But to his surprise, there was no pushback on Hellfire. Wow. Okay. So the animation team took it and ran with it, taking inspiration from Night on Bald Mountain, mm-hmm. using symbolic images and playing with light and shadow. That makes sense. They storyboarded it. And as I said earlier, the only thing that they wanted to change was that Esmeralda was naked. So they <laughs> made it clear that she had clothes on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but other than that, the studio had no problem with it. And I think it is worth saying that she has clothes, but I think her figure is still overly exaggerated, right? Especially her breasts are like very prominent in that scene. I mean, they sufficiently sexualize her. Oh, yeah. Without making her naked. Right. Yeah. It's like I assume they removed her nipples and added what appears to be like the strap of a dress. Yeah. (laughs) That's probably about it. Mm hmm. Remember all the nipples in Night on Bald Mountain? (laughs) (laughs) That's where they took inspiration from. It makes sense. (laughs) Okay. But later down the line, the studio started to worry that the film wouldn't get a G rating because of Hellfire. Yep. And PG was still considered a death sentence for animation at the Mm -hmm. time. Mm Mm-hmm. But the ratings board only took issue with the word sin in the song. Frollo (laughs) sings, this burning desire is turning me to sin. Uh Uh-huh. The scene had already been fully animated. So Don Hahn suggested that they make the whoosh of the like transition and the hooded judges coming up from the floor a little louder so that it would drown out the word sin. Uh Uh-huh. And it worked and the ratings board... Gave them a G rating. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The one other issue they had was when Frollo restrains Esmeralda inside the cathedral and sniffs her hair. Yes. The ratings board had no problem with the scene itself. They thought the volume of the sniff was too suggestive. (laughs) What? What? (laughs) Who are these people? What are they doing? That doesn't... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the sniff is creepy no matter its volume 
Right. It's just once it's too loud, then it's too suggestive. But if it's quiet, you know, it's fine. If the word sin is really quiet, it's basically like it's not there at all. Exactly. What? So they made they made the sniff quieter uh-huh. and everything was fine. And then there were there were no other changes. No need. No need. Uh, um, in a 2021 retrospective with the New York Times, Han, Mankin, Murphy, Truesdale, and Wise all agreed that the film would never get a G rating today. Murphy thought it wouldn't even be made. He says it would definitely be PG-13 by today's mm-hmm. standards. And also just worth noting, because the other filmmakers like to bring it up, that the idea for the sniff scene came from Brenda Chapman. And it was animated by Kathy Zielinski, Frollo's supervising animator. So it was two women who put this scene together. That's so gross. I hate when men do that and talk about like, well, it's fine because women did it as if women can't mm-hmm. be misogynist from growing up in this patriarchal culture that we're all trapped in. Ugh. Or like, we agree, this is how creepy men act. It's wrong, but like... The only thing too suggestive about it is the volume of the sniff. Right. (laughs) For a kid's movie. Also, like, you think this is appropriate for children. Just because some of your animators think it's a good idea doesn't mean that you can abdicate responsibility as the Mm -hmm. directors or the executives on the film. Like, you're still responsible for everything contained within it. Yes. Oof. The film was originally scheduled for a Christmas 1995 release. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was delayed to summer due to Katzenberg's departure and some shuffling of responsibilities in the animation department. Christmas may have been a more appropriate time of year for this dark religious film, Mm. but instead they were looking at a June blockbuster, kids are out of school vibe release. Uh (laughs) So despite everyone being on board with Hunchback's wild choices so far, Marketing suddenly got worried that the film's themes wouldn't play well in trailers and give the like right vibe for the summer. So they decided to focus on the lighthearted side of the story with trailers, posters, toys, focusing on Quasimodo's acrobatics, the gargoyles, and the Feast of Fools. Sure. The tagline for the movie was join the party. <laughs> So excellent. That's so amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Yep, that's what this movie is, a party. (laughs) Yeah, so they weren't subject to like any truth in marketing type Mm. regulations, obviously. Nope. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) (sighs) In a move that made a lot of folks at Disney upset in the run-up to release... Jason Alexander did an interview with Entertainment Weekly, and he said, quote, Disney would have us believe this movie's like the Ringling Bros for children of all ages, but I won't be taking my four-year-old. I wouldn't expose him to it, not for another year. Yep. And Disney got pretty mad about that. Uh-huh. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah. Get it? Ringing bells. Ha. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 The film premiered on June 19th, 1996, 
at the New Orleans Superdome. Hmm. And before the premiere, they had a parade through the French Quarter that was basically one of the Disney World parades just like picked up and dropped in New Orleans. So it wasn't like hunchback themed necessarily Mm -hmm. on a $100 million budget. Mm -hmm. Way more than any Disney animated movie has ever cost. Mm -hmm. The film ended up grossing 100.1 million domestically and 325 million worldwide. All right. So it did okay worldwide, but like barely broke even domestically. Yes. It is the lowest earner since The Rescuers Down Under. Oof. And Disney was pretty, pretty disappointed with this performance. They were hoping it would at least make as much as Pocahontas. Mm -hmm. Did not do that. Film critics overall gave it positive reviews. Roger Ebert gave the film four out of four stars, calling it, quote, the best Disney animated feature since Beauty and the Beast. But I also want to call out in a couple instances how ableist some of these reviews have been which ties into kind of how the filmmakers were about it too roger ebert also said quote the movie is forthright in its acceptance of quasimodo's appearance and doesn't look away from his misshapen face okay yeah owen gliberman of entertainment weekly called the film quote an emotionally rounded fairy tale that balances darkness and sentimentality pathos and triumph with uncanny grace Richard Corliss for Time Magazine praised the film, its themes, its music, though he admitted that Hellfire would be, quote, hard to explain to the kids. (laughs) (laughs) He also said that Esmeralda, quote, emerges as the latest in Disney's line of feminist freedom fighters, a Pocahontas with Romany eyes. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And lastly, Janet Maslin of the New York Times, who loved Beauty and the Beast, quote, Utterly shat on Hunchback, according to Kirk Wise. Uh Uh-huh, okay. (laughs) She said, In a film that bears conspicuous, eager resemblance to other recent Disney hits, the filmmaker's Herculean work is overshadowed by a Sisyphusian problem. There's just no way to delight children with a feel-good version of this story. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, she also noted that she felt like she'd seen a lot of the visuals, the songs, particularly out there, and the character roles before, and that Mm. Disney was feeling repetitive. Like, it was kind of the same story, just slotting in different characters. Interesting. Audience-wise, many moviegoers reacted poorly to the marketing campaign after Mm -hmm. seeing the movie, feeling that they had been tricked. Disney also got pushback from a number of parents' groups for the content of the film, despite its G rating. Mm-hmm. Don Hahn said, quote, Maybe that was the right campaign for the studio to get people into the theater, but I'm sure I wouldn't do that today. I think there's a truth in advertising responsibility that people overlooked back then. Yep. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, exactly. Surprisingly, in the articles that I read that interviewed actual children who had seen the film, mm. most of them were really nonchalant like they were like i liked it it was pretty i like esmeralda like none of them mentioned being afraid or confused probably very similar to like me maybe coming out of this movie when i was little was like it was fine yeah i kind of just let it all wash over me and it's gone and didn't really pay attention or something i like movies (laughs) i got popcorn (laughs) (laughs) 
The film was nominated for both the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Original Musical or Comedy Score. Okay, so Mencken still got his nomination. Yeah, he didn't win anything and he didn't get nominated for Best Original Song. Mm. I want to end on this quote, which uh, is from Peter Schneider, who's president of Disney Feature Animation, where he expressed a different opinion of most of from most of the people involved in the film who were overall happy with it, proud of it, a little surprised still by like the darkness that they got away with. Mm-hmm. They were like, we set out to make this film and we did a great job and it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. In a retrospective from 2020, Schneider said, quote, I am going to be controversial. I think it failed. The fundamental basis is problematic if you're going to try and do a Disney movie. As far as we tried to soften it, you couldn't get away from the fundamental darkness. It never settled its tone. If you look at the gargoyles and bringing in Jason Alexander to try and give comedy to this rather bleak story of a judge keeping a deformed man in a tower, there's so many icky factors for a Disney movie. I'm not sure we should have made the movie in retrospect. I mean, it did well. Kirk and Gary did a beautiful job. The voices were beautiful. The songs are lovely. But I'm not sure we should have made the movie. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I agree. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's my history. Ta-da. Ta-da. Wow. Are we ready to talk about some themes? Well, you know, I already broke the seal earlier, so we might as well get into it. <laughs> Let's start with religion. Okay. I wanted to begin with some context. The clergy sex abuse scandal Mm. was very much in the public discourse in the early 90s. There had been rumblings about it in the 1950s. More came to light in the 1980s, but it was very much in popular culture there was a now infamous performance on Saturday Night Live by Sinead O'Connor, who ripped a picture of the Pope in half Ooh. on camera. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yes. That was in 1992, so four years before this film came out. But mm. I think that's a very prime example of how awareness of the sex abuse scandal had permeated into popular culture. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting context in which to make this film, which has such strong commentary on religion in the source material. Yeah. So you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but what do you think Disney is saying about religion in this movie? I think Disney is saying that people are often too focused on using religion for their own personal gain. Mm. I think Esmeralda's vision of what religion should be is what the movie advocates for so that we should be helping the poor, the outcasts. There's a line where she says, like, weren't Mary and Jesus outcasts too? Mm-hmm. So definitely aligning the Romani people's plight with who God would want you to help. Definitely not people like Frollo. (laughs) We don't support people like him who use the word of God to harm other people and promote genocide. Yeah. Even though Frollo is a judge and not an archdeacon, the archdeacon is like kind of a good character in this movie. It kind of reads like he's a priest. Mm -hmm. His song Hellfire is interwoven with 
the music of vespers. His robes are also supposed to be reminiscent of like the clergy. He's wearing religious garb rather than like that of what an actual military man or politician would wear at the time. Yeah, I think they sufficiently impress upon the viewer that religion has the potential to be very harmful, right? They show how Frollo is using religion to justify both his individual abuse of Quasimodo and Esmeralda, but also using it to justify widespread violence and discrimination. So they problematize religion there while also presenting Esmeralda's visions of religion in which it's a source of hope and the church is a sanctuary and there's this potential for justice. But because of this context of clergy sexual abuse, it's really hard to parse out the parts of religion that can be Mm. a vehicle for hope from the parts that are so potentially harmful. There's like not a clear direction there of how to move toward that. Mm. So I leave wondering, do we just throw the church out altogether? Do we throw religion away altogether? Because there's no religion without the church. What would that even look like? It brings up more questions than answers for me. Mm. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other themes happening in the movie that the messages around religion specifically kind of get lost Mm. interesting i don't think i felt that way because it felt like the movie was advocating for like a return to god to like god's original word versus the way that like institutions and people have corrupted and used religion for its own purposes Mm -hmm. which was very easy to like separate in my mind like Frollo is power mad and wants to control and he is using these symbols and these words for his own means and like the parishioners are doing that as well but the archdeacon Mm -hmm. seems to agree with Esmeralda though he kind of doesn't do anything and I wish he had like right something Mm -hmm. but I see what you mean about like so what do we do about it and I Mm -hmm. you know I don't think Disney is offering any solution to that problem but agreed like this is so tightly woven like it goes all the way to the top it goes all the way to the pope where like how do you practice religion morally or ethically within the institutions that are being used at the time and now yeah and maybe this is a situation in which my own perspectives and biases are complicating this for me because i was raised catholic Mm -hmm. i did study theology in undergrad and my feelings around Catholicism specifically and Christianity more broadly have really changed over time in part Mm -hmm. because of my feelings around the institution of the church itself. And so maybe that is just difficult for me to parse out because of that. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about how religion is used to justify large-scale social violence. So the film is setting up a narrative around the Romani people and their unjust social treatment under the law and social norms. I did want to briefly touch on terminology as well, because we've been using the term Romani, which is not the term that they use in the film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They use 
the term gypsy and gypsies exclusively, Mm -hmm. which I think is a a really interesting choice to be doing in the 90s. Like, I can understand why Victor Hugo would have done that in 1831, but I would have expected Disney to reflect a little bit more on their use of terminology, but maybe that's asking too much. (laughs) (laughs) But for anyone who isn't aware, and and I wasn't really, I had to do some learning for this. The Romani are a historically nomadic ethnic group. I say historically nomadic because that was much more the case in the past than it is now. But that group originated in northern India with widespread diaspora across Europe, including in France. And the Romani have been subjected to widespread discrimination and violence, including genocide during the Holocaust of the 1940s. So Mm. this film is set in the 1400s, but the violence that the Romani experienced then is not that far removed from our very recent history today. And they continue to face extensive discrimination. There are a lot of stereotypes of Romani people as criminals or swindlers. Most of us have heard the term gypped, like Mm -hmm. to be cheated out of something. And that is actually a derogatory reference to gypsies and perpetuates that stereotype. So if that's part of your vocab, you might want to switch that out. And the film, I think, does highlight the stereotyping of Romani people as negative. Like it paints that stereotyping in a really critical light. Mm -hmm. But how do you think? think they do overall in terms of their representation of the Romani people era. <laughs> I don't think they try to represent the Romani people very much at all. Hmm. It's basically just Esmeralda and Clopan that we see as like actual characters. Mm-hmm. And then of course, when we finally do get into the court of miracles, it's Quasimodo and Phoebus entering in this like secret lair and like the first thing they do is like ambush them as intruders and it doesn't really paint like a very empathetic light they're just continued to be shown as these dangerous people Mm -hmm. conniving Mm -hmm. clopon is very witty and clever Mm -hmm. esmeralda is sweet and kind to quasimodo and a good fighter and all that stuff, but she's also dangerous as a good fighter. Mm-hmm. And she basically pole dances in the square. So mm-hmm. that like sexualization. And she's accused of witchcraft because she uses like a smoke bomb to escape. So yeah, like they use a lot of those stereotypes still. Right. I totally agree. Esmeralda is a hero in the story. She's clearly painted in this positive light, but because of the Court of Miracles scene, it almost makes it seem like she's the exception rather mm. than the rule. That's a good point. And like she's the one who can code switch between these two cultures, yeah. right? She's the one who gets along with Quasimodo and Phoebus. But the Romani as a group are still very marginalized and not necessarily portrayed in the most positive light in the ways that you were describing. I do think this is really throwing Disney like a very generous bone, but (laughs) 
I do think they attempt to show the ways in which the Romani people have a very rich and vibrant culture that includes artistry and dance. I think they show that it's a community with a strong sense of collectivism and one which values reciprocity. Those things all seem accurate based on the research that I've done about the Romani people. So I think that is something, but (laughs) it's so, so grossly insufficient Mm -hmm. if one of the main thematic thrusts of this film is supposed to be about the unjust treatment of people who are quote different yeah we don't get to experience the culture very much it's just these like couple stand-ins for the culture as a whole and then frollo for all people who perpetuate ethnic cleansing right yeah i also think it's interesting that i think esmeralda is the darkest skinned Mm-hmm. mainish character we've seen. Yeah. And like Pocahontas, probably the, the next person before Esmeralda that has like sort of the darkest skin, women of color. Right. But I I felt like at moments in this film, Esmeralda looked kind of gray. Hmm. Like her, she wasn't lit very well and like could like look kind of ashy. Mm. which I know is a complaint that a lot of black people make about like photographers when they're on covers of like magazines, Mm -hmm. white photographers photographing black people and that like, they don't know how to light them correctly to make them look as gorgeous as they are. And Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like that was happening here with how the animators are animating this woman of color and not really being familiar with how her skin interacts with light and shadow. And so she doesn't look as good as she should in certain Mm -hmm. scenes Mm -hmm. because they just don't have the experience. So that reflected poorly on them for me. Absolutely. I am very curious if there were any Romani people on this (laughs) filmmaking team, and I would bet you a hefty sum that there were not. I didn't hear about any. (laughs) Yeah. And when that's the case... These are the issues that arise. So you mentioned how Esmeralda does a version of pole dancing at the Festival of Fools. So let's talk more about the ways in which her character is sexualized in the film. This is a conversation we would have regardless, but it's especially important to have it with this intersectional framework in mind because not only is she hypersexualized, but she's also a woman of color. On the pole dancing note, quote unquote, I mean, that's not truly what she's doing. Like she has a a big staff that she like uses as part of her performance. Mm -hmm. I noted as I was watching that, like, it didn't really feel that sexual to me. It's like the movie keeps telling me that she's being promiscuous or Mm -hmm. whatever, And obviously, like, Frollo is extremely attracted to her. And he calls her dancing a disgusting display. Mm -hmm. But, like, I was just like, she's just doing a dance. She looks very nice. (laughs) She's doing a good (laughs) job. I mean, when she sits in his lap and does the scarf thing, I think that's the most, like, suggestive moment for me. Mm -hmm. And then the use of the staff like pole dancing that also pushes it over the edge Mm -hmm. but in that scene like i don't find it that sexual (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know if I had the same experience in terms of how I was reading the sexuality in her dancing. For me, it seemed pretty erotic. But then that, of course, is immediately reinforced by the reaction that we're seeing in the crowd, right. predominantly male crowd. It's a perfect encapsulation of the ways in which gender is socially constructed through interaction, right? So perhaps the dancing wouldn't be suggestive if it were in a different context and if it were eliciting a different reaction from the crowd. But since it is, it becomes sexual. Mm -hmm. I think the filmmakers try to communicate that Esmeralda is performing as a form of labor, not as something that necessarily brings her joy. There's an interaction that she has with Quasimodo where she's admiring his arts and crafts. And she says, if I could make things like this, you wouldn't find me dancing in the street for coins. Mm. That exchange is so interesting to me because it communicates the way that she views her own labor as potentially unskilled and also undesirable. Mm. But then it's immediately followed up with Quasimodo saying, but you're a wonderful dancer, which on the one hand is like, yeah, great. Quasimodo is acknowledging that her dancing is, in fact, a skilled form of labor, but it's also coming from a man who's falling in love with her. And so is saying like, but you're dancing so wonderful because it's super hot. (laughs) Yeah, and like there's that moment where the response to Frollo going, look at that disgusting display is Phoebus like raising the visor of his helmet and going, yes, sir. Yeah, so this whole scene is through the male gaze and it's hard to break out of that. Right, so it's hard to feel excited about the extent to which Esmeralda might be owning her sexuality in like a healthy or exciting way because exactly we're experiencing it through the eyes of all of these other characters who are men. Mm -hmm. Esmeralda and Laverne are the only women in this story. And uh, don't forget Quasimodo's dead mother. (laughs) Oh, right. Of course. (laughs) How could I forget her? Of course. (laughs) The the one who's on screen for 45 seconds. And only serves to die and motivate the plot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I also wanted to talk about the moment when Esmeralda kisses Quasimodo on the cheek in a way that I found really interesting. It's a very blatant moment of her, quote, using her sexuality to persuade him to let Mm. her come visit because he's sort of like protesting, protesting. And then she surprise kisses him, you know, doesn't (laughs) ask if that's something he's into on the cheek. So in a platonic way we learn but that is interesting to me that like that's how she chooses to convince him Mm. I'm not remembering the scene well enough to know if that's like a one last thing for him to be like oh okay or if it's as Mm -hmm. thanks after he's already agreed so does it come before he agrees yeah so Mm. so she's like well I'll come visit you here and he says oh I have my chores and I have to ring the bells for vespers and da 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 and she kisses him and he says whatever's good for you yep okay (laughs) (laughs) so what (laughs) yeah yeah i guess that is a moment where like esmeralda 
is leading him on a little bit. Right. In a way that I don't like. Like, if she doesn't like him, she shouldn't do something like that. When she, It's so obvious that he likes her. Like, she, mm-hmm. she must know that. And encouraging him when she's not going to return his affections is not not kind. No, it's not kind. And it's frustrating that she's using her sexuality to persuade a man to do something that she wants. I feel like that's a trope that we see all the time especially with women of color, with this classic stereotype of the Jezebel. I mean, it's a very fraught type of interaction. Yeah. Can we, t- can we talk about Hellfire yes. and the sexualization within that? We've already talked about kind of what Esmeralda looks like. It's a, like a hallucination of Frollo's in the fire in yeah. this giant room that he's in in the palace of justice right he is setting up sexual harassment and coercion where the line is choose me or your pyre be mine or you will burn yeah have sex with him or he's gonna burn you at the stake so like also going back to all the men watching esmeralda also like have power over her have more power than she does maybe not Mm -hmm. quasimodo but phoebus and frollo certainly do Mm mm-hmm so she has no power in this moment and he can do whatever he wants. Right. And it's terrifying and creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a ton more to say about that in particular. It's an interesting display of masculinity. There's been some scholarly writing about that and how the message here is that men are not in control of their sexuality. There's a really clever way that the lyrics are functioning in Hellfire as well as the music. Frollo has this whole bit where he says, like, it's not my fault. I'm not to blame. It's the gypsy, the witch who set the flame. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault. If it's in God's plan, he made the devil so much stronger than a man. So, like, mm-hmm. first pushing off his sin to, like, being caused by the woman. It's not his mm-hmm. fault. He can't control himself. She's too sexy. Right. <laughs> and then pushing it off on god as well Mm -hmm. and this whole time every time he says my fault the hooded judges are singing in latin around him and they sing mea culpa or mea Mm -hmm. maxima culpa which mean my fault and my most grievous fault in Mm -hmm. answer to his it's not my fault um so they are like contradicting what he's saying as he's saying it Hmm. And the priests are singing the beginning of the confiteor. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but that's a portion of the penitential rite of the Catholic mass where Hmm. people confess their sins and ask for forgiveness. So Frollo is essentially confessing, but it feels like the religious figures here are not offering that forgiveness. They're like, no, it is your fault, bud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not God. You're accountable for this. It's not Esmeralda. It's you. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting because that seems like a very clear message on the part of the filmmakers that Frollo's behaviors are completely inappropriate. And the exchange that you mentioned with the not-so-loud sniffing <laughs> is another <laughs> example of that, right? <laughs> So the filmmakers are saying that men should be in control of their sexuality, that it's Mm -hmm. not the responsibility of women. 
And yet we have an example with Phoebus when he encounters Esmeralda in the cathedral. He is saying, calm down. Let me apologize. Mm -hmm. Which is so subtle, but is also the exact same rationale behind other forms of male entitlement of I deserve to be able to do to you what I think I should be able to do. Even if that is apologize to you, you are supposed to let me do that. It's very John Smith, like it's copy so and paste it. <laughs> so John Smith. Now you see what Janet Maslin was saying. It's just the same characters over and over again. Right. And so <laughs> it's like great that Disney can condemn this over-the-top problematic misogyny of Frollo, but then it's not problematized when Phoebus does it, even though it is the exact same type of behavior, just on the other end of the spectrum in terms of severity. So it it's just so frustrating. Yeah, they haven't fully made the realization that like, just because you're not singing about your lust to a fire doesn't mean you're 100% a good guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's your take on the romance between Esmeralda and Phoebus? I mean, Phoebus is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Kevin Klein did like a good bit of ad-libbing. And I just think every little witty comment is so stupid like <laughs> there's that moment where jolly um esmeralda's goat like tries to headbutt phoebus or something like that he's like oh i didn't know you had a kid like <laughs> it's so uninteresting to me <sighs> but in the context of the movie there's not a lot of like lead up to it i feel like mm -hmm. the two pretty people get together yeah and, like, obviously Phoebus is interested in Esmeralda and she knows that. And then once he gets hurt, she's just suddenly, like, interested back. I mean, she saw him save a family from a burning building, which is right. very wonderful and probably pretty hot. <laughs> but, like, there's not a lot of depth behind that. I do appreciate that Phoebus seems to admire Esmeralda for her cunning, her ability to fight her mm -hmm. intelligence, as well as her appearance. She rescues him a couple times. It's not always him rescuing her. So mm -hmm. there's gender equity in the rescuing, <laughs> which seems good. And his arc, for better or worse, kind of seems interwoven with like her calls for justice. So she's really the one who helps Phoebus see the error of his ways in his allegiance to Frollo. Mm -hmm. And all of that feels good to me. That works for me in terms of portraying a romance that seems relatively equitable and as healthy as it could possibly be, <laughs> given the <laughs> time constraints of <laughs> their interaction within the narrative. Yeah, they're a fine match. Like, I don't really have any problems with it. I just find it boring and uninteresting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I think it becomes more problematic because it does happen at the expense of Quasimodo's feelings for Esmeralda. Yes. So yeah. let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so 
there's such a, a horrible dichotomy within the film of how Quasimodo is treated mm-hmm. where like even filmmakers talking about it, like he's the hero, he's the good guy, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, mm. but he's like really strong and athletic and just wants his freedom and to be appreciated as a person. Right. But every character treats him poorly, even if they're supposed to be a good guy. So Esmeralda, like when she's talking about Quasimodo after she saves him from the attack, basically, at the Feast of Fools, Mm -hmm. she calls him like this poor creature and this poor boy. And the word like using that word creature there is like you're just perpetuating what everyone else thinks about him, that he's not a human. Mm hmm. All of Esmeralda's interactions with Quasimodo seem really infantilizing. Even her tone of voice when she's reading his palm to look for a, quote, monster line and doesn't see one. Like, it's all just very much the way you would speak to a child. All the way up until at the very end of the movie where we're looking from Quasimodo's point of view out of the cathedral and Esmeralda, like, reaches down and in shows us that like she's higher up than him like almost as if she were reaching down to a child yeah and disabled people are infantilized all the time Mm -hmm. and like esmeralda has no obligation to fall in love with quasimodo like that is certainly not what we want to argue and like Mm -hmm. i feel like it could be a really cute like sort of sibling relationship that comes Mm -hmm. out of this where like she is the you know, worldly experienced person who has gone through so much trauma that like she knows how the world works and is can like protect him and teach him. Mm-hmm. And he is happy to have a friend. Mm-hmm. But obviously he falls in love with her and she doesn't treat him like an adult. She doesn't even always treat him like a person. Mm-hmm. And the film seems okay with that because they're never gonna fall in love anyway Mm -hmm. i read an interview with someone who was working on the film where they were like it just didn't feel right for quasimodo and esmeralda to end up together and there was like (laughs) no no further discussion on Mm -hmm. why right and like sure that's not the way the book ends up anyway but they changed a lot of things about what happens in the book too Mm -hmm. So just this this disregard of the sexuality of disabled people mm-hmm. and that they could ever find love or that someone could treat them like a human and not use word like creature for yep. them. The film just doesn't believe in his humanity. Right. And it is heartbreaking because it is so central to the story. Heaven's Light is all about quasi believing that no one could ever love him and then the film is like yep you're right (laughs) correct (laughs) right like it doesn't contradict that the gargoyles have this whole song and dance number about how attractive he is a guy like you we have we have to (laughs) we have to go into some of these lines but ultimately (laughs) the film is like nope pretty people stick together Mm mm-hmm yeah Okay, so do you want to talk about a guy like you? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't. The backhanded compliments in that seem so indicative of where, like, the filmmakers' heads even are at. Like, hmm. it's funny because 
the listener hears it as ironic or sarcastic, like not mm. as genuine, like, and that is how it's functioning. That's how it was written. It's supposed to hmm. be funny. So like they call him one of a kind, uh, a guy like you, a girl does not meet every day. You got a look that's all your own kid. You're a surprise from every angle. You've got a certain something more. You see that face, you don't forget it. They never say like, you're handsome, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, they will never come out and directly say that. Mm. And that just goes all along the lines of like, in a lot of the interviews and reviews I heard, like people were happy to use the word grotesque or misshapen or deformed about Quasimodo. And like, no, no, <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. so cruel and unnecessary. And again, like, of course that guy isn't going to get the girl. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think I have experienced that song as inherently sarcastic. I have actually read it as earnest and genuine, but that doesn't (laughs) remove the problematic things that you highlighted about how we're not talking about him being handsome. We're talking about him being unique because he's disabled and that is thus desirable, which then also swings the pendulum to the other end of the spectrum of the fetishization of disabled people. So it's like we're either desexualizing them or fetishizing them mm-hmm. because of their disability. And so, yeah, it's not great. The filmmakers were... I think, trying to celebrate (laughs) Quasimodo's disability and difference, but they ultimately take this huge misstep in just highlighting his disability as a way that he can never fit in, that he's still going to be different. Yeah. And I agree that the gargoyles, I think, are genuine. But the viewer, I think, is supposed to see it as a joke while the gargoyles are in the moment. Mm-hmm. But like the gargoyles are still not choosing to say like an actual kind thing. Compliment. Right. Yeah. They're they're still like sidestepping the the issue. They don't want to mention like he knows what he looks like. Right. Right. We also might want to spend our time problematizing white western ableist standards of beauty rather than talking about whether or not quasimodo does or doesn't fit those and whether or not that's a good thing yes we're kind of missing the point i want to make one more point about how quasimodo's appearance i guess is functioning or Mm. Mm -hmm. the future that he is allowed in this film so in his article Disney Gets Religion, Fadner talks about how Quasimodo and Frollo are are foils for one another in a mm-hmm. couple of different ways. But Quasimodo not getting the girl, like intentionally not getting the girl, mm-hmm. is a foil to Frollo's control and need for her and that he would do literally anything. He'll burn down Paris to control her and have her and Quasimodo gives her up quote unquote he gives phoebus and esmeralda his blessing at the end Mm -hmm. so he has a quote where he says indeed quasimodo's ability to let go of his dream and having esmeralda for himself when it becomes clear that she does not love him in that way 
is the foil to Frollo's lethal lust as he sweeps down from the cathedral to rescue his beloved Esmeralda from Frollo's fire. Hmm. So he is forced into this role where he's supposed to be the good guy. He isn't allowed to get the girl because he has to step back and show that like not all men <laughs> basically. <laughs> and it, this is all thrown onto this already abused man. Yeah. That it's just like another layer of like, well, since he can't have the girl anyway, at least we'll use him as like this symbol for respect for women, I guess. Yeah, interesting. Right. I don't know if that's good or bad. Like he's setting a good example of respecting consent and boundaries, but also, eh. Right. Like if we take the film at its word, and Esmeralda is not interested in Quasimodo, and she is interested in Phoebus, then Quasimodo needs to be okay with that. Right. But back up another level to the actual making of the film Mm -hmm. and that assumption that they would never end up together. We don't have to even think about that possible idea. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah, totally. You know, I think your point about his ability to fit in generally is well taken there's an interesting book by ward called mouse morality from 2002 and ward writes quote when even the heroine of the story sees the ugliness before she sees the person the possibility for quasi to live among the people happily ever after is not there despite Mm -hmm. the ending that suggests otherwise The cruelty Quasimodo experiences at the Festival of Fools continues for too long for the audience to have its memory wiped out by a transcendent turn, end quote. Yeah, I agree. It goes on so long. So long. It's so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, it's excessive, I think. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to point out that there is a pretty significant intersectionality fail here (laughs) because Quasimodo is also Romani. He is? Yeah. Think about who his parents are. Oh, of course he is. He isn't born in the... He is just like (laughs) arrived in the bells. Yeah. True. Yep. Yep. So exactly. Like, (laughs) no one is going to pay any attention to that because his physical appearance in terms of the color of his skin, the color of his hair is not consistent with the way the other Romani people are depicted in the film. So we're entirely focused on how his disability is the reason for his difference when he's actually doubly oppressed through both his disability and his ethnicity. And that's very interesting To me, like if he was Romani, like depicted as having like darker skin, more obviously Romani. Mm -hmm. Did the filmmakers make that not true on purpose because he wouldn't be as sympathetic? Great question. Or at least they think that to a white audience. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Ooh, hate that. Hate that. (laughs) Wow. I didn't didn't even think about that. Good point, Rachel. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) Interestingly, there's like a whole weird switched at birth storyline in the original novel. So Esmeralda is actually white in that story, but raised as Romani. 
huh. Oh, interesting. I'd be curious to see how that affects the narrative. But then I would have to read the two chapters about the cathedral. I know. I know. Terrible. It's just not possible. (laughs) No way to know. Uh, Question for you on like a different aspect of potential disability or mental illness that we haven't talked about. Do you think the gargoyles are real or not? Or like what kind (laughs) of real are they in your mind? I don't know that I would argue for looking at it through a mental health lens necessarily. I don't think narratively that they are supposed to be real. Mm-hmm. I think they are supposed to be figments of Quasimodo's imagination. It seems very similar, albeit tonally different, to Wilson in Castaway. Yeah. yeah. When someone is that isolated, it makes sense that they would personify an inanimate object in order to have some level of social interaction. But I don't think they are intended to be actual hallucinations. What did you think? I think the film doesn't want you to think too hard about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that for me, it seems like Quasimodo is like playing pretend with them, much like Mm -hmm. the the people he has carved in his little like playset kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So whenever they like freeze in weird positions, when someone else like comes up to the tower, like I have this image of like Quasimodo carried them around the room Mm, and like set them mm -hmm. up in these different motions but then Mm -hmm. it's also like therefore are all these conversations in his head did he give himself the pep talk like yeah how far do these like personalities that he's created go and Mm -hmm. does he believe that they're real or is it just just imagination just playing pretend Mm -hmm. and I don't I don't know which side of that I believe or want to fall on but I think it could lead to some interesting readings of the story if Quasimodo has has sang all these songs to himself or right if it's actually all internal dialogue yeah mm-hmm. yeah that is right. interesting and actually might indicate that he has a little bit more confidence intrinsically than it appears he has yeah which could be nice yeah there's one instance that makes me think that maybe they are intended to be magic which is that Hugo breaks character and blows a raspberry at Jolly, the goat. Oh, yeah. And like comes out of stone mode and back into stone Mm -hmm. mode. Mm -hmm. Also, they seem to attack the soldiers attacking the cathedral at the end. Right. And Quasimodo is busy doing other things. So he can't be like pretending to hurl rocks that Hugo is like spitting out of his mouth. (laughs) Right. So. Yeah, again, I don't think the film wants you to think too hard about it. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, cool. Just was curious. I know, that's a good question. So I wanted to just highlight the character of Laverne. As we talked about, there aren't Mm. that many women characters or female characters in this film. And Laverne is this crotchety old lady. She's also wise. So all the old people tropes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Basically. Yep, all rolled into one. That's it. Great. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to talk about abuse, which we have already talked about in and out quite a bit because everything in this film comes back to abuse of someone, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you have for us here? I actually found 
the depiction of abuse between Frollo and Quasimodo very moving in how realistic it is in terms of the gaslighting, the name calling, the degradation. All of those dynamics are very real and often happen within the context of both caregiver relationships as well as partner relationships. I thought they did a really good job depicting that. It just Mm. feels very accurate to a lot of people's experiences. And it also shows how that type of emotional abuse can escalate into physical violence Mm. when Frollo tries to stab Quasimodo and then throw him from the bell tower at the end. So I found that very resonant. Yeah, and we definitely see how Quasimodo has swallowed all of it. Like he's so self-deprecating. He believes all the horrible things that Frollo has convinced him about himself through these patterns. Like the beginning of Out There is so gorgeous musically and so horrifying in the way that he has Quasimodo repeat after him of like, I am a monster, Mm -hmm. only a monster. I am ugly. I am deformed. Mm -hmm. Frollo is extremely believable in Mm. that. Like he thinks all these things are true. Like we know that he is lying to Quasimodo about the world, but I think Frollo might pass a lie detector test because he thinks all these things are true. Right. He's convinced himself as much as he's convinced Quasimodo. Another thing that seems so poignant is the extent to which Quasimodo is clearly so conflicted around going against Frollo's commands, Mm -hmm. which that is also very realistic to an abuse dynamic. He values Frollo for housing him, clothing him, feeding him, even though we, we know that Frollo is essentially doing the bare minimum and doing it in a way that is actually very harmful. But it makes sense that Quasi would feel conflicted. And so I'm glad that they captured that. Yeah. And then when he does make it to the Feast of Fools and horrible things end up happening to him because of the way he looks. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, Quasimodo is like, I will never disobey you again because you were completely right. I think you had mentioned how Quasi's mother is just this narrative device and she is in terms of advancing the plot and explaining how Quasi comes to be in the bell tower but also Frollo uses her in his gaslighting of Quasi and makes Quasi believe that his mother abandoned him even though his mother lost her life trying to save him so Mm -hmm. that's just another way in which the mother does become narratively relevant (laughs) yeah in in a very impactful way i think yeah and when he reveals the truth at the end in his like semi-villain monologue it's very scar i killed mufasa (laughs) oh my gosh yeah and then he falls into fire once again. Same Gabrick. Yeah, I'm starting to be convinced that that is the case. <laughs> they just kind of like shook up all the components and characters of the past few movies and like dumped them out and said like, all right, this makes sense. Right, we did this really well before. So let's do that and that and that. Yeah. But I mean, that's also how like many, many villain monologue endings are in film. Of course. Not unique to Disney. <laughs> right, right. Well, that was everything that I had. 
Yeah. My one other small thing is just kind of like the homosexuality or homophobia Mm. that appears or people think appears in Mm. the film. Most notably, I'll mention this again later, but the song out there was read potentially a like coming out song for Quasimodo. And then the ending is him actually coming out and hopefully finding community and acceptance and accepting himself. But it was read by the Christian groups this way. Oh, gosh. Some gay rights groups like adopted the song out there for themselves as well. Well, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is really nice. But then all these Christian groups got really mad about it. And then the other thing is that I just want to point out that like compared to some past villains, Frollo is like very obviously not being queered in this Mm. film. Mm -hmm. We have talked about that, obviously, in the past. Go see our Beauty and the Beast episode about Gaston. (laughs) But, you know, Scar and even like Hook. Mm -hmm. But in this one, Frollo is definitely heterosexual. Mm. And he's a bad guy. And it has nothing to do with him being gay. It's quite the opposite. So for once, you know, Disney not throwing these like homosexual stereotypes onto the villain but letting them be actually heterosexual and still terrible. (laughs) Shall I do some extras? (laughs) You should do some extras, but I have one extra (gasps) first, which is, did I perhaps hear a Wilhelm scream from one of the guards at the end of the movie? No! (laughs) You heard a goofy holler. (laughs) A goofy holler. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. That tracks. That Those tracks. Those are different. <laughs> That's so it, it was familiar. Yeah, yeah. It's a goofy holler. <laughs> that was going to be one of my extras. Great job, Rachel. <laughs> okay, we got that one out of the way. What are your other extras? <laughs> oh my gosh. So, to follow up with my out there being used as both a thing to attack and a moment of pride for gay rights groups, let's talk about the Southern Baptists. Oh, shall we? So they were mad about the song out there, obviously. So the name out there was already a pre-existing name of a gay advocacy group. But Disney like claims they didn't know that and that wasn't intentional. It's just kind of a coincidence. Okay. Southern Baptists were mad about that because they thought it was intentional. Of course. They also, of course, thought Esmeralda's blatant sexuality was inappropriate. Blatant, quote unquote. But the Southern Baptists had begun an official boycott of Disney the month before release of this film for, quote, disparaging Christian values. Well, they don't like parties either. (laughs) They didn't want to join the party. No. (laughs) But they'd obviously been mad about the prior seven films or whatever where we've talked Mm -hmm. about this. So they finally actually did something and started an official boycott. But they were apparently slightly surprised at the factual and sympathetic tone Hunchback took toward Christianity. The film was also being made long before the boycott. So it's not like they were reacting to the boycott and trying to like get back in good with that group. Mm -mm. The Baptists also seemed to think that like, you know, a broken clock is still right twice a day. Disney happened to do this one thing that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still mad about enough other things. 
including that Disney was now giving same-sex partner benefits to its employees, which Mm. was a big reason for the boycott. And relatively progressive for the mid-90s. Yeah, for real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they were also mad about, quote, gay nights at the theme parks, (laughs) which I had never heard of before, which is kind Mm. of surprising. Have you ever heard of gay nights? I didn't know it was like a regular thing, but I think I've known that there was like an LGBTQ day or something. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. so there's gay nights and gay days. And I didn't know anything about these, but I did some research and Disney does not sanction gay days. Oh. It's completely organized by like the people attending on blogs and things. They're like, we're all going on this day. It's usually the first Saturday of June. So like corresponding with Pride Month, Mm -hmm. people who choose to participate wear like a red shirt so that you can like identify other people who are there for that purpose. Nice. Disney told employees to treat it as just any other day so to not like promote it but also not discourage it yeah particularly in the 90s it was basically they were like we're just not gonna do anything about this like it's Mm -hmm. fine people are still coming to our parks and giving us money (laughs) (laughs) the one thing that did happen in the mid 90s is that disney started putting up warning signs at the entrance during gay days to let people not participating in gay days know that it was happening. (laughs) Uh And also at one point gave out white shirts to straight guests who were afraid of being mistaken for being gay. Ew, (laughs) ew, cringe, cringe. Horrible. Yeah. Gay days still happen, still not sanctioned, though Disney has been happy to put rainbows on a bunch of its merchandise during Pride Month uh, Mm and capitalize on those people attending who will buy that stuff. But yeah, so that's why the Southern Baptists were mad also. (laughs) Oh, and also worth noting that Demi Moore, who played Esmeralda, would Mm -hmm. be starring in Striptease soon after Hunchback released. Interesting. They didn't like that. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> too bad. <laughs> so, Rachel, you almost certainly know about the cameo by Belle in this movie. Oh my gosh, her her eyes have widened. She does not know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Belle's in this movie? Really? Really? Wow. <gasps> That's bonkers. Okay, so yeah, uh, at the beginning of Out There... When Quasimodo looks over one of the plazas, you can see Belle reading a book as she walks uh, past the fountain. Oh my god! I'm gonna go watch it right now. <laughs> there are also supposedly two other cameos, I guess, in that exact same moment. Hmm. One of which I could prove, and one of which I could not see. So there is a man holding magic carpet from Aladdin, also okay. in that scene. Cute. And then supposedly there's two guys carrying a pig on a stick, like to be roasted. And people say that that's Pumbaa. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> okay. That seems like a stretch. It does. I try. I watched the scene very slowly multiple times and like could not get good enough of a view of this pig to see if it's actually supposed to be Pumbaa or not. He's too the men carrying him mostly cover it but the other two for sure okay i will check that out (laughs) 
worth mentioning that David Ogden Stiers is the voice of the Archdeacon. Okay, can I say, on the soundtrack for The Bells of Notre Dame, the artist line, David Ogden Stiers is the first person credited. So until researching for this episode, I thought David Ogden Stiers played Clopin. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that would be a big difference. Yeah. His voice is definitely not. (laughs) I realized he was the archdeacon. I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Cool. Okay. Uh, I mentioned earlier that France was pretty happy about this film. Most people in France liked it when it came out in March 1997. That's when it premiered there. Many people felt a connection between the messages of the film and a real-life event in August 1995 where French police raided St. Bernard Church and seized over 200 immigrants seeking asylum from France's strict deportation laws. Mm. So they thought that this this tied in really strongly and was a positive message and felt very much like it was about, it was a modern commentary on that event and not just Mm. on past ethnic cleansing. Wow. In contrast, descendants of Victor Hugo sent a scathing letter to (sighs) the Liberation newspaper in France, which they published, that bashed Disney for not once mentioning Victor Hugo in their advertisements. And they Mm. described the film as, quote, vulgar commercialization by unscrupulous salesmen. Well, I I don't know that I could completely disagree with that, especially in terms of how it was marketed. They did name two of the gargoyles after him. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's exactly what Victor would have (laughs) wanted. And lastly, I hope you watched the credits all the way through because there is a post-credit sequence. (laughs) There is. Hugo says, good night, everybody. But interestingly, Abby Small, which is Jason Alexander's character in Aladdin 2, Return of Jafar, gets a post-credit sequence in that movie. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, Cool. Okay. Well, great extras. What grade would you give this movie Based on 1996 audiences. This is a tough one. Yeah. Has some like actual legit criticism that was easy for me to find as well, which is nice because I can't always figure out what actual audiences said versus just looking at like box office. Mm -hmm. I think because critics were complimentary, it is still like a success. But overall, I think people were pretty mad about just like how this was presented and if they had done Mm. it differently, maybe it would have done better. So I think I'm going to give it a C. Mm -hmm. It's average, I suppose. Yeah, that seems fair. All right. What do you think for 2022? Okay. I'm going to give it two grades. The first is as a children's movie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is a, a D. D <laughs> minus, maybe even. So if you are listening and you're wondering if you should show this movie to your small children, the answer is no. No. <laughs> Be like Jason Alexander. <laughs> but if you are viewing it as an adult, I think it is a beautiful film visually, 
The music is stunning. I think there is a lot of really interesting commentary around religion and social justice. And I think those things are worthwhile and make it, for me, an enjoyable film. Of course, we have to... (laughs) acknowledge the problematic aspects around race and especially around disability. So it's not going to get an A, but I would give it for adults a B plus. Okay. Wow. I'm biased, obviously. (laughs) I love this movie. So maybe that's, you know, a little too high, but that's what I'm going to say. Yeah. I think that that makes sense. Cool. Do you have a recommendation for us? I do. If you are looking for a TV show that is just kind of fun, a little bit of a romp, you might want to check out She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Ooh, yeah. Have you been watching it? I have been watching it. Yeah. It's not great. I wouldn't (laughs) say it's the best show ever, but I think it's really fun and it does kind of hit you over the head with its feminism. Yeah, it's trying a little hard. It's trying pretty hard, but I do think it's fun to watch and thematically connects to this film in terms of exploring what it means to have different abilities and look differently than other people. This idea of being monstrous is relevant in both pieces. So, yeah. Can she get a date in her Hulk form or her regular Gen form? Watch to find out. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. We did it. Woo! I'm pretty excited for the next one. (gasps) Who puts the glad in gladiator? Hercules! (laughs) (laughs) All right. Email us at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter. We got to 100 Twitter followers. That's pretty good. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Decon Disney. And we would love if you could rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 